Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, for some COVID-19 survivors, symptoms persist even months after the diagnosis. Now, we'll hear how Piedmont Healthcare's COVID recovery clinic is trying to help. We think it's about 10% of people who will get this that will actually have lingering or so-called long-hauler symptoms. Trying to treat both the acute process as well as now venturing into this phase where we're dealing with the chronic process is a new challenge for us all in the medical community. Plus, the city of Decatur and Agnes Scott College are coming together to create a climate resilience plan. And we'll hear why Target is expanding its Black History Month campaign with a focus on black creators and brands as well as business leaders. All that's coming up in just a moment. But first, this from the Biden administration. We're announcing that the federal government will invest $1.6 billion in three key areas. Supporting testing in schools and underserved populations. Increasing genomic sequencing and manufacturing critical testing supplies. First, we'll invest $650 million for testing to begin to help schools with reopening and to reach underserved populations. While this funding will serve as a, only as a pilot until the, until the um, American Rescue Plan is enacted, we wanna act quickly to help get support underway in these priority settings. Some funding coming to the nation's schools. Now that's Carol Johnson, the U.S. COVID-19 testing coordinator during the White House weekly COVID-19 task force presser. As for vaccinations, the task force also announced plans to increase weekly allotments from 11 million to 13.5 million. Meanwhile, back here in Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp says the state has now crossed the million and a half COVID-19 vaccine mark. Now we should note, this is the number of shots given not the number of people vaccinated with the required two doses. The governor's office says Georgia has administered 78 percent of the vaccine supplied by the federal government. And this comes at a time as Georgia nears 800,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases since last March. To be exact, we're looking at 796,547 cases to be exact. More than 2,000 cases were confirmed just yesterday. So the state's COVID-19 death toll now stands at over 14,000. It's 14,254. And as always, we get our information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. And we want to note the number of new hospitalizations in Georgia. Well, they continue to decline. Bloomberg reports 16 percent of Georgia hospital beds are currently occupied. So that number is going down. In other news, it's another day and a different scenario regarding Fulton County Registration and Elections Director Richard Barron. Now, earlier in the week, the Fulton County Elections Board voted 3-2 to two to fire Barron. But yesterday, the Fulton County Commission couldn't agree on supporting that termination. So in a meeting, motions to accept and reject the decisions both failed, which means for now, Richard Barron sells the job. What does all this mean and what's the problem? Joining me now to share where he stands is Fulton County District 2 Commissioner Bob Ellis. Commissioner Ellis, thank you for taking the time. Good to see you again. It's been a while. It, it has been a while. It's uh, good to be on with you. Yeah. How you been doing all this pandemic and everything? You've all been busy, we know. Staying healthy, being busy, and uh, just trying to help as many people, help help as many Fulton County citizens out as possible. Yeah. You know, some very tough times for everyone. Absolutely. You know, yesterday I asked Chairman Pitts when he became aware of any issues concerning Richard Barron's job. I want to ask you the same question. Had you been hearing anything either from the elections board or from anyone that perhaps Barron's job was in jeopardy and might be up for a vote for termination? Well, I think certainly it was evident when um, articles in the press and so forth came out that the board was deliberating lengthy in executive session and that sort of stuff that uh, that might be an action that they were considering. 
um, not a surprise that it's something that they were, would potentially consider anyway, given the course of the events over the course of the past year, um, you know, with the multiple election cycles that we've gone through in Fulton County and some of the issues that have cropped up in, um, in each of those particular uh, cycles. So, Well, for clarity, Commissioner Ellis, where do you stand on supporting Barron's removal? Are you in favor of it or you are in favor of the decision only coming from the elections board? Well, my, my general, my general view is that I think this is a decision that solely rests with our board of elections. You know, we have uh, these boards of elections throughout the state in each County for a reason to act independently and certainly, I don't think anyone wants elected officials who are going to be on the ballot and running for elections in a particular area having any real engagement in the running of those individual elections and certainly making personnel decisions about who will be executing those elections. It's a conflict of interest. And by nature, these boards are set up independently. Uh, and when you hear of other firings around the state or terminations or changes like that, you do not hear of the Board of Commissioners getting engaged. In Floyd County, for example, you know that I believe that individual was terminated earlier in the year by mm -hmm. the Board of Elections. So when these independent boards make decisions, it's their, it's their purview and it should be their decision. Uh, in fact, uh, after the challenges in June, in the June primary, uh, there was a Board of Commissioners meeting where several commissioners uh, voice their frustration relative to uh, the performance of our elections team and of Mr. Barron. And our then county attorney explicitly told the board they had no role in whether or not uh, Mr. Barron could be terminated or his employment would continue. And that those powers rested with the board of elections. So why at this point in time, uh, our board is weighing in on this at all uh, certainly every individual on this board or every elected official is entitled to their opinion and their viewpoints around stuff. But from a decisional standpoint related to the continued employment of Mr. Barron, I believe this power solely rests with the Board of Elections. Then why was there a vote, period, with the commission? Is that somewhere written? There, is, there, is it in a charter? Is it No, it's not somewhere. It, 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 there was an attempt to cite by our now county attorney some vague, uh, reference within our county code that said that the board of commissioners had to ratify termination. There's nowhere in our code that speaks anything to the termination of um, the board of elections, uh, you know, supervisor, elections director, whatever you want to refer to them as related to a board of commissioners engagement. The only thing there's a reference to is the board of commissioners ratifying an appointment of uh, said individual, uh, you know, that they shall mm -hmm. they shall approve it upon recommendation by the board of elections. So that's a ratification of a particular appointment, which is to me on only in a ministerial duty. And certainly if you look at everywhere else in the state, uh, this is the function of the board of elections. So uh, I think it was improper that it was brought before us. Uh, I mentioned that yesterday during our board meeting. Uh, but, you know, I said if we were had to carry out some sort of ministerial function to do it, uh, certainly it needed to be ratified. And that's why I did at a minimum ask for it to be voted on and carried forth uh, so that that board could continue to do their work, uh, go through a future selection process, et cetera. So that's my viewpoint viewpoint on it. Someone listening may say, well, Commissioner Ellis, here then lies the problem because if you're going to make a decision, if, if you're going to make an informed decision that, that your vote will go either yes or no, you're making that decision on your own personal belief or opinion about the duties of Mr. Barron. So half of y'all thought he was doing OK and half of y'all didn't. So, well, my yeah, my viewpoint is it's not our role to determine uh, whether or not he should continue employment. It's that view of that board. If we're required just to ministerially accept a re recommendation, um, then we can have some sort of formality vote. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But to have the, the notion that you're going to have two, two, two separate boards evaluating, you know, the performance of an election supervisor flies in the face of any sort of logic. Um, you know, this is the group 
you know, we're not running elections. We're not engaged with we being the board of commissioners. We're not running elections. We're not in the process of doing a performance review of Mr. Barron year in and year out. That is the function of this particular board to look at. We but, may have opinions mm -hmm. about uh, about the election itself, but those are and we can express those. That's fine. Um, but we should not be, you know, be the arbiter of whether or not somebody's employment should be continued or not. If there was a public in health... In this particular case, that's not our function. Sure. But if there was, let's say, a public health director that wasn't, and this is a scenario, wasn't doing his or her job as it relates to the pandemic, where lives are at stake, you certainly would have the right to voice your opinion as a commission, as one body, as a commissioner, how is this different? Because you all are operating within Fulton County. You all have said, everyone has said, we want a, a a voting process that is fair, that it's run with competence. And given that the pandemic happened, we're still in this pandemic. So can you understand someone saying, but I would I would want the Fulton County Commission, whichever way, to be involved in all of the decisions as, as it relates to me as a citizen, whether it's dealing with the pandemic or voting. Can you understand that? I can understand people wanting elected officials to express their opinion, mm -hmm. uh, but I do not necessarily understand why our citizens would want people who are going to be running for elections themselves engaged in, you know, getting involved in the actual running of the elections and making those types of decisions. That is a clear conflict of interest. Um, you know, so yes, mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I fully, I feel a fully, um, believe that anyone should be able, and we, we as elected officials should express our opinions about what our citizens are telling us, as well as what we are seeing individually. Mm -hmm. Those are fair game. Uh, I expressed my opinion to the members of the boards of elections back in June in a formal letter stating that I felt like they needed to consider personnel decisions. That, that was an opinion. I rendered that opinion to them and I asked them to deliberate over that. Mm -hmm. I think all of us as board of, board of commissioners and other elected officials have that right and should voice that, but it's not our role uh, and we are overstepping our authority mm -hmm. when we get into the arena of um, making the decision to continue the said person's employment or terminate his employment. I want to get your thoughts on this before I let you go, because one of your fellow commissioners, um, Khadijah Abdul-Rahman, in a statement uh, said it's no secret that state and county Republicans want to, one, curtail Mr. Barron's effort, efforts to find funds to expand voting, remove drop boxes and get rid of mobile voting. We will not stand for turning the clock back on voters' rights in the cradle of the civil rights movement. This is a direct statement in terms of could this be political is this something drawn upon political party lines? Commissioner Ellis, what's your response to that? I think it's only drawn on political lines if our board of commissioners chooses to get engaged in this process uh, and, and seek to overturn a decision by the board of elections. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you are relying upon a board that is a bipartisan board. It, uh, in this case, it's five-member board. Mm -hmm. um, three members are Democrats and two members are Republicans. Um, so there's no there's no one-sided party making this particular decision. You don't think so? Um, no. Good. I mean, three Democrat. I mean, three two two Republicans and one Democrat were the, the, the affirmative votes uh, to terminate him on this board, and 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 two Democrats voted in the negative. Um, you know, so this is a bipartisan vote. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are people from both sides who, who were charged with evaluating the performance of this individual and they made this decision. Um, you know, and if we as a elected, you know, group decide to engage in this and make it political, that's when it becomes political. If it rests with this independent board of elections, it stays non-political. So Commissioner Ellis, as we wrap up, what's the next step here? Well, it's certainly my hope that um, as a body, we recognize that this is this Board of Elections decision and we honor what that is. Um, you know, but we'll see if, um, you know, folks come to that conclusion on their own. 
uh, and we allow and honor those decisions to be made by this independent board, um, you know, so that they can then get on with a process of employing and engaging uh, the people that are going to allow Fulton County elections to be as strong as it poss possibly can be, um, you know, with widespread early voting, with, you know, um, quality election day experiences, multiple locations, with transparency in terms of the absentee ballot process, uh, with consistency, you know, throughout their process in terms of reporting in uh, not having some of the major blunders which we have occurred, which have, we have seen occur in Fulton County time after time after time. Um, so I hope that it, I hope that this that our board of commissioners reaches that point and says that the board of elections, this is their power. They've deliberated over it. This is their decision. Um, we support them and we're moving forward. And if that doesn't happen? We'll see. I don't know what happens. I mean, I think we could be met with a challenge. We'd mm -hmm. be in the Fulton County Board of Commissioners should we seek to overturn it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we would lose that challenge if it occurred. Fulton County District 2 Commissioner Bob Ellis. We're talking about the commission's current deliberations on whether or not to vote in favor or removing current Fulton Elections Director Richard Barron. Commissioner, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be with you, Rose. Thanks for having me. All right now. My name is, and I am, David Escobar, and I live here in Benteen Park, which is pretty close to me. My favorite thing I would say is just the, the sense of cleanliness and, and kind of a new modern feel where everybody's kind of on the same page. Since I'm pretty new to the community, I don't have anything I know I want to change, but uh, rent prices could come down. I think that'd be great. I'm sure it won't happen soon. I am Marguerite from Marguerite Jerk Bistro, and I live in Decatur, Georgia. About my community is just the togetherness of people just welcoming you and just coming together to make it safe and make it feel like home. What I'd like to see is that people would take more interest in their properties and just clean up behind themselves and just look out for each other and just try to make us be in a safe, to be a safe net for all of us because there's just so much going on right now and we just have to look out for each other and just, you know, be each other's keeper. My name is Andre Mintz. I live in Stone Mountain, Georgia. My favorite thing about my community is the fact that the music plays a large part in the, uh, the culture. In my community, I'd like to see more healthy food options because outside of the perimeter, a lot of the community doesn't necessarily support the, the fruits and vegetables, the organic culture as much as in the city, and I'd like to see that expand. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. For some years now, Target honors Black History Month with many campaigns and themes. This year, the retail giant is expanding its Black History Month collection, including merchandise from black designers and businesses and storytelling. It's all called the Black Beyond Measure, Measure Campaign. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Flora Epi-Indang, the senior brand marketing manager at Target, and Gina Holiday, the creator and owner of, I love this title, Spoonful of Faith, an illustration and design studio. Floor, Gina, welcome to the program. We appreciate it. Thank you. Hi. First of all, I hope y'all are safe. I don't know if where y'all are. There's some snow. I think Gina, you're up in Minnesota, so I know yes. I know you got snow. We're good. <laughs> Flora, where are you? I'm currently in Jersey, so I it's snowing right now. But yeah, y'all got snow too. Yeah, uh, we yeah. here in Atlanta have. To, well, it's it's okay. We won't have any snow, which I kind of miss. Um, Flora, let me begin with you, because I gave a very brief overview of the Black Beyond Measures campaign. 
give us a little bit of insight into the concept and how this is different in Target's past Black History Month initiatives. Yeah, so um, specifically um, for Black History Month, this is actually our sixth year actually doing a Black History Month assortment and you know incorporating as well a dedicated marketing campaign, events as we've done with team members as well as community engagement. And then what sits as well in conjunction with that is our Black Beyond Measure platform. So actually Black Beyond Measure is kind of our always on um, kind of you know Black guest engagement platform. We call our um, customers our guests. And this was started actually last year, January, during Black History Month as a statement and a phrase in regards to celebrating Black success. The idea of the resiliency and optimism, especially of the Black community. And so seeing that there was limitless possibilities of what the Black community can achieve. And so Black Beyond Measure became this mantra. And then for this year's Black History Month campaign, we kind of took that to the next level, really centered on celebrating and acknowledging the amazing Black founders, Black creators, Black designers who are really being able to create economic vitality mm-hmm. in their communities and for future generations. Um, and really just centered around this notion of Black well-being, which is something we know all of us, especially in these times, just need to support in that. So. That was kind of the basis of it. How do you all go about making sure, I mean, look, everyone says, I'm a creative, I'm a designer, I got a brand. There's some wonderful folks out here. Y'all can't get everybody in the stores, but how do you all sort of, I guess, what's the, take us through the process for reaching out or finding these creatives, these store, these brands, these folks with their, their merchandise. What's that process like? Yeah, um, so I can, you know, definitely speak from uh, the target lens. Well, it's something that truly is a collaborative, you know, opportunity in a lens that our merchandise team between our product development team, our marketing partners, as well as just in collaboration with our internal ERG, our African American Business Council, Mm -hmm. just really working on how are we, you know, every day of the year, Target is focused on how are we supporting and showing up with Black founders and creators. And with this year's kind of collection theme, which was around well-being, there was just a lot of planning done kind of a year ultimately in advance, really focusing on which brands um, that either we currently have, but also which ones we have opportunities to even partner with that really are thinking about this idea of mind, body, and spirit. And so between, like I said, our merchants, our product development team and our marketing partners, it's really kind of, hey, you know, how are we always continuously looking out for amazing brands, but also how are we actively highlighting the current um, black owned brands um, who are ultimately as well hitting that. And I know I'm sure Gina, from your experience, probably being reached out to as well um, has probably been a great opportunity for that. Well, and I I want Gina to talk about that. First of all, Gina, I I want you to know I ordered a t-shirt. You did? Yay! <laughs> Let's go back. How did you, when did you find out that, you know what, my brand is going to be associated with Target? Take us through that. Sure. So um, about, actually about a year ago, um, Target reached out and um, they found me. So I, I maybe Flora can talk a little bit more about that, but. Um, but they send you an they email? Did they send you a text? What'd they say? They emailed me and they just asked me if they were interested in partnering together and they want to have a conversation about it. And so um, obviously you can imagine my like excitement when I got an email from them and I'm like, what me? Like little old me, it felt, um, I don't know. I felt very seen and like, oh, maybe what I'm doing is actually, you know, impacting and, and um, you know, just resonating with people. And so from there we, we discussed, you know, coming up with a small collection of items that would live in the Black History um, collection. And it was just, it was exciting to be able to focus, you know, specifically on how we can um, support, love, put out something for um, the Black community. And so they really, what I loved about it was that they really let me um, kind of run with my creativity and 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 come up with something to to share, um, and they supported it. So th- I was I was very um, I don't know just like surprised slash excited, you know, to be able to put my own spin and twist on on it and to be supported that way. You're an illustrator and an author, yes. so you were able to take your passion, your creative talents. And then you get them in Target. Uh, Flora, when you hear Gina and you hear the excitement in her voice as she talks about, wow, I've got this this partnership with, with Target. I imagine there hasn't been anyone that says, no, nah, I don't want I don't want my stuff in Target. Um, what is this? Someone listening may say, OK, you're well, Target. Are you only doing this because it's Black History Month? Do you, do you keep the brands in there? 
are they seasonal? I mean, obviously, you know, we're in winter right now. So some products you only bring out because they are seasonal. How committed are you all to still working with these these creatives and, and these brands throughout the rest of the year? Or is it a one and done deal, so to speak? Oh, no, this is, you know, definitely commitment as we think about, you know, all year round. Um, so what's so interesting, even I want to just highlight, even in our current Black History Month assortment, including as well someone like Gina and her amazing art. So it's kind of broken into three prongs mm -hmm. where like a part of our assortment is in the apparel and accessories space, which is designed internally even by our own designers, led by our Black designers. Then we as well did a partnership in a HBCU design challenge where we actually worked with college students, I guess they now have graduated, and adding an element and helping them get um, workforce development and partnership with our designers. And then also partnering with these amazing kind of new upcoming, you know, you have Gina, you have other partners that we brought in to feature their collection um, potentially for a limited time. In addition to that, adding new items in. And then we also incorporate our everyday, you know, inline black owned brands that we're carrying in spaces like beauty and spaces like food and bev, as we think about as well, um, and, and home and other categories. So this is something that Black History Month happens to be the moment that I think a lot of people are paying, you know, of course, the most attention to when brands are focusing on this space of black businesses. But it's something that is rooted all year round, even on our website that we have for the Black Beyond Measure campaign, we actually have a Bly, a Buy Black page mm -hmm. where we, we created that since last year of September and have had a way of always every day showcasing our Black-owned brands across the year. And as we continue to, of course, grow the assortment, as we think about Black History Month, some of those items being limited time and some of them as we look at opportunities for how do we carry those through through the year too. Do you have other campaigns around whether it's other ethnicities or other specific initiatives th throughout the year? Does Target do that as well? Yeah, so we also have in addition to that, so um, with our um, last year, we launched with a Hispanic Heritage Month in Mass K, um, focus of which is more than in English. And it was really highlighting and having an opportunity to show that with the Latino population, it's more than just one identity. There's so many elements, the mm -hmm. multidimensionality of the community. So we incorporated Latino owned brands. Um, and we also have a new badge as well that highlights in terms of if you go to our site, you can now identify brands that are Latino owned, similarly with our Black. Um, owned and founded brands. And in addition to that, like we've had kind of our ongoing heritage um, program for Pride really has been something that we've done yearly for the past couple years as we continue to look at assortments that our internal teams create, but also looking at as well for LGBTQ focused on brands. Now, do you have a public radio host brand at all? <laughs> hey. And why well, not? Why not? Right. It's like <laughs> I'm all about speaking it into existence. So, <laughs> Gina, uh, can you take our listeners through? Uh, I don't want to get all up in your finances, as we say, but how has the, the revenue been looking since the, the partnership with Target? Yeah, You're smiling. So if that <laughs> <laughs> right, that's a good sign. Um, it's been great. And then I, I think on top of that, just the opportunity um, has just it's just opened up so many doors, so many um, other businesses, brands, partnerships mm -hmm. have come and said, oh, I saw you on Target. You know, this is where I found found your work. Um, so many specifically like women have purchased my my items from Target and have feeling connected to me. And like, I can't believe I found your brand. So it's actually brought so much more than I expected, um, you know, in the contract and what I thought I was going to get, you know, <laughs> but it's brought so much more than that, which has been great. Flora, as we wrap up and you heard what Gina just said, and listen, we're coming off, we're still in this pandemic. And I just finished a, a community conversation about small businesses and, and how they're going to make it post-COVID. Uh, just sort of your own personal thoughts, because you're also a brand. You're also someone who has ideas. I checked you out. I was doing my own little research. You're creative. You speak. You know, you, so you, you understand this. What do you want folks to know about the importance of a, a major brand like Target, given this opportunity, whether it's to black creators or Latino, you know, those in the LGBTQ space, and how all this, I mean, yes, yeah, y'all yeah, may be competitors sometimes because you're all selling stuff. But at the end of the day, being able to partner with these smaller businesses and what that does for the economy. Yeah, I think, well, one thing, first and foremost, is like never underestimate the power of the black dollar. 
Um, and, you know, understanding the fact of, um, it's important all day, every day to be supporting Black creators, Black designers, and Black founders. It's amazing that um, we, just for the fact that we have this Black History Month assortment that we've been doing for six years, and every year it consistently grows and gets bigger. And every year um, it serves as an opportunity as well for, as we as a brand, think about the importance of what does it mean to be focusing on supporting and investing in Black brands every single day of the year. It's something that's important. I think for us as a corporation, it's the ties to our values. One of our core values is focused on inclusivity. And I think as we continue to build out this year into next year, always keeping a pulse on like what new brands. I think one thing for us as Target is that a lot of, you know, brands that we tend to work with, especially that are black owned or founded are sometimes not necessarily brands that everyone knows but because we're like, okay, why doesn't that brand should be noticed? That brand like Gina Holiday and her company, like mm -hmm. it's so amazing now that you're being able to even get more attention and get more opportunities. And so of course with us, but you know, as well as you grow, and so I think for us, that is something that's consistently important. And that is why, you know, we're always just keeping a pulse in terms of how are we working as well with our supplier diversity team, our accelerators, our merchandise team, um, as we continue to just not want to see Black-owned brands thrive. Not Black-owned brands, sorry, so survive, mm -hmm. but truly thrive. Um, and doing that with Target, as well as even with other brands and that they just have um, the proper tools. Uh, Flora Epic. Epi Edang is the senior brand marketing manager at Target, at Target, and Gina Holiday is the creator and owner of Spoon Full of Faith, an illustration and design studio. I'm sure the sales are just going to skyrocket now that you've been on Closer Look. Best of luck to you, Gina. Flora, thank you so much for what you all are doing to help so many people throughout the nation. Thank you all. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Going to go back a little bit. January 3rd, 2020. Chinese officials provided information to the World Health Organization regarding a cluster of cases that they call, quote, a viral pneumonia of unknown cause identified in Wuhan. And now look, a year later, at this moment, our nation has more than 27 million coronavirus cases. And there's still a lot to be learned about this virus, specifically its long-term effects on the health of individuals who've contracted the disease. Now, according to a recent article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, research suggests about 10% of COVID-19 patients become what's called long haulers. I'm going to give you more about that definition in a moment, experiencing symptoms after they have recovered from the virus. And to provide care for people recovering, long haulers, they call them long haulers, hospitals across the country and even right here in Atlanta, well, they're opening up recovery clinics. And here in Atlanta, the Piedmont Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine Division has the Piedmont Pulmonary COVID Recovery Clinic. And joining me now to talk more about the recovery clinic is Dr. Jermaine Jackson. He's a pulmonologist and a critical care medicine specialist with the Piedmont Pulmonary COVID-19 Recovery Clinic. I cannot believe I've ever said pulmonary that many times in a row. Dr. Jackson, thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Ms. Scott. But thanks for having me. Hey, man, look, let's reflect a little bit on when you go back to January of last year and we were starting to hear about this strange, then they called it pneumonia type, these cases. What do you make of all this now a year later? Well, it, we've come a long way. I distinctly remember having conversations early on during the pandemic about this thing that was happening over in China. And I think at that time, uh, a lot of us were a little naive and did not really grasp the impact of what 
could happen and certainly obviously what has happened uh, over the ensuing 12, 13 months. Uh, fortunately, uh, we're starting to see a decline in the number of cases as well as in the number of deaths that are occurring. But we still got a long way to go as we continue to learn more and more about this disease, both its acute or early impact, as well as the, the long term effects of the, the coronavirus. And I imagine because of the complexity of this, which was the word that a lot of folks use like you used early on, I imagine because of the complexity of this virus, treatment is going to be so different. You know, when we have the flu or pneumonia, sometimes there, there are typical regimens that we can all, you know, do. But this is so different. And, and how, if you can, for our listeners, talk a little bit about how this has been complexing when it comes to treatment. Yeah. So if we recall, the family of coronaviruses has been around a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think many of us were very, um, uh, many people in the public were very um, taken aback when they realized that they looked at their their run-of-the-mill Lysol bottle or Clorox bottle, they saw coronavirus on that actual bottle that said it would kill those particular organisms. Uh, but this was a little bit different. And so because coronavirus has been around a long time and it's been one of those nuances that has caused the common cold, uh, initially there wasn't a whole lot thought of this. Uh, but we did know from past times, and specifically 2001, 2003 era, uh, when we actually had the so-called SARS-CoV-1. Now, this did not make it to stateside. It did not impact us here in the United States much. Mm -hmm. So for many of us, we still didn't know a lot about it. And despite being into this for over a year, we have yet to come up with a cure. So I want people to know that, yes, we're able to support individuals a lot better in terms of treatment options. But we have not devised an actual cure for the disease at this point. The good news is, is that the statistic continues to hold true. 80 to 85 percent of individuals who get the disease tend to overcome the actual disease itself, mm -hmm. meaning they don't succumb to it or die. But that still leaves a, lives on a portion of those individuals who, even though they get over it, they still have a lot of residual symptoms. And I think you alluded to that earlier in your commentary. We think it's about 10% of people who will get this that will actually have lingering or so-called long hauler symptoms mm -hmm. that are present. So trying to treat both the acute process as well as now venturing into this phase where we're dealing with the chronic process is, is a new challenge for us all in the medical community. And we're going to talk about the acute and the chronic in a moment, but I want to go back to something that you said. And for folks who may not understand, this is a respiratory disease, however, Depending on the individual, it can also have an effect on if you have a lingering condition as well. So you, everyone may not experience the shortness of breath or respiratory issues, so to speak. Is that correct? Absolutely. It's one of the things that's fascinating about coronavirus is that for a lot of individuals, and when I say a lot, we're talking somewhere between 40 to 50 percent of patients' current state are asymptomatic, meaning they have absolutely no symptoms whatsoever, at least in the early phase. And yet they're carrying the disease, which is one of those things that are that is propagating the ongoing spread or continuing to spread the disease because people are going around without even knowing they have it. Mm -hmm. Now, for those who actually come down with it, the, the, the constellation of symptoms is vast. In the beginning, we we all thought that this was purely a respiratory problem, but we quickly learned that there are multiple organs that are impacted by this. Certainly, you can have cough, fever, mm -hmm. shortness of breath. But those are other areas that can be involved in terms of the heart, the kidneys, the gastrointestinal system, like having nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the areas that we underestimate in terms of potential to be able to contract the disease is actually through the eyes, through the mucous membranes of the eyes. So mm -hmm. that's one of those areas that uh, we're starting to learn more and more about. And for our listeners, because we want to have facts here, let's talk about just first defining acute and chronic, because we're going to be using those words in a moment, and I want folks to feel like they're part of the conversation. Define them sure. for us. Yeah, so when you talk about the acute phase of, of the disease, this is typically individuals who become inf infected with the coronavirus, and they have initial symptoms that can occur usually three to four days after uh, the actual infection. So there's that pre-symptomatic state where you're actually infected, but you have no symptoms. Mm -hmm. uh, and for those who will ultimately develop symptoms, that typically happens you know, somewhere between 76, 72, 96 hours later. And so for those first few weeks, and the CDC defines that as the first full weeks, those individuals who have ongoing symptoms are still in the so-called acute or convalescent stage. Convalescing just simply means mm -hmm. recovery. Mm -hmm. 
But once you get beyond that four week mark, there's a little bit of discrepancy in terms of how we define those with chronic or long hauler syndrome. Mm -hmm. For example, here in the United States, we define those individuals of people who are having symptoms greater than four weeks. But if you go across the pond and our colleagues over in the UK, et cetera, will define that as 12 weeks. So there's still wow. a lot of discrepancy in terms of the actual definition. And subsequently you see that with the various nomenclatures or names that are out there, long haulers. Uh, long COVID syndrome, et cetera. Let's get some clarity for our, our listeners. And you are a doctor, so they can say that you said it and not that Rose Scott said it. If you are in a recovery mode, so to speak, with COVID-19, are you still contagious? That is a great question. Here's, here's what we know so far that the typical infective state uh, of the disease is usually less than about 10 days. Now, if I actually bag up, when we start looking into the literature and the data, we have yet to be able to define or find individuals on a large scale that are actually shedding live virus that replicates, that can infect another person, usually after about eight days. Mm -hmm. So that's why that isolation period is only about 10 days. However, there's a small cohort of individuals, usually those who are very sick, that can actually shed live virus up to 20 days, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that's important is that for the overwhelming majority of people, you're usually not infected and in, in, in causing transmission disease usually after that 10-day isolation period. Mm -hmm. However, that's totally different than being able to test positive later on. So I know a lot of people get that part confused because the way the test works, it's not looking for live virus, it's just looking for remnants or residual elements. It's sort of like the virus has left a little bit of its skin back either in your nose or somewhere on your mucous membranes, and we're actually able to just find that. Well, given that, what you just said, could that also cause a problem if someone goes back to get tested again? And could it give a false positive then? That is absolutely correct. So, And I didn't even go to medical school. Look at that. You're on top of it. You're on top of it. Um, <laughs> Oftentimes, individuals will continue to test positive despite having resolution of all their symptoms and being beyond that 10-day isolation period. We see that quite frequently, which is why there's, unless you're actually having symptoms, neither the CDC nor most of us, most of us in the medical community recommend repeat testing unless there's a true indication because although you may have resolved your infection, you mm -hmm. can still test positive. And those are two separate things. And I encourage people that if you've had resolution of your symptoms and you're beyond your 10-day isolation period and you're wanting to actually get tested, talk with your healthcare provider about the risk, benefits, pros and cons of that, because sometimes that can lead to unnecessary stress, mm -hmm. ongoing isolation, decreased productivity, et cetera. So Dr. Jackson, the folks that you all are helping at the Piedmont Pulmonary COVID Recovery Clinic, these are considered, quote, long haulers? Well, so great question. So we've actually, in the short term, we opened up a little of uh, the first correction, the second week of November. Mm -hmm. And in that short period of time, we're a little over nine, 10 weeks into this, and we've had almost 500 referrals to our COVID recovery clinic. And that's just here in metropolitan Atlanta with all the 11 hospital network systems that Piedmont Healthcare System is involved. So as you can see, that is a, a large number of people in just a short period of time. Now, the way we actually approach this is twofold. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, there's those that are in the acute or convalescent stage, meaning they're just recovering, mm -hmm. uh, and we're following those individuals also. But then there are the so-called long haulers who are experiencing a significant portion or uh, ongoing symptoms that are beyond the four-week period. And we continue to learn more and more about both of those two dichotomy or classifications of individuals. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Jermaine Jackson. He's a pulmonologist and the medical director of the Piedmont Pulmonary COVID-19 Recovery Clinic. Then I imagine that each patient has uh, like an individualized treatment path that you all plan for them, correct? That's what it sounds like. Absolutely. So again, you're all on top of it. No individual is the same. So we can't take a cookie cutter approach to this for two reasons. Number one, we're different. The way we respond to the virus is different. The, the number of symptoms and those residual symptoms that people will have, they vary from person to person. So a one-size-fit-all approach certainly doesn't work. And so what we try to do is we take a customized approach in a standardized way, which I mean, what I mean by that is for each individual that comes into our COVID recovery clinic, 
Obviously, as pulmonologists, we're trying to assess both your current and potential future state of in terms of what will happen to your lungs. Mm. What we know based on history, both with the SARS-CoV-1 epidemic that was seen, as well as the MERS, which stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which was also caused by coronavirus, but this is mostly in the Middle East uh, several years ago, is that there's a small cohort of individuals who can end up with long-term lung complications or disease. There's even a small portion of those individuals who had scarring or so-called fibrosis of the lung. Mm. So we're certainly trying to look into this and figure out what group of individuals may or may not fall into that risk category to have that. But then there's the so-called extra pulmonary symptoms. That's the heart, the kidneys, um, the, the neuropsychological portion. We know that this can impact the brain. And one of the areas that's woefully underestimated is the impact that it has on the psyche, your psychology. There's a ton of anxiety. I dare not say, and again, there's no data whatsoever that backs me up on this, but I feel that there's a significant portion of the population that has a little bit of underlying anxiety just because of living in current day society. Oh, absolutely. That's happening. Of course. So how do you all assess? Do you have to check out everything, the lungs, all the other organs? How do you assess these in the patients in terms of what this treatment path is going to look like? And so initially what we do is we do a physiologic assessment. Obviously, we do an exam. We check your lung function. We check your functional capacity because probably the most common lung hauler symptom is fatigue. Uh, the inability to truly get back to your baseline from a functional status standpoint. And then if we determine that there's some so-called extra pulmonary problems that are going, going on, we have what we call our clinical partners. And these are content matter experts in other fields or other specialties that we will subsequently refer you to for ongoing management of those issues. Dr. Jackson, in the work that you all have been doing, is there anything that you have noticed or your colleagues have noticed in all of the patients in terms of this recovery that might have opened your eyes or said, you know what, we, we need to take note of this? Is there some particular symptom or some particular other metric that you all have been able to identify? And that's, I would say, in a majority of the patients who are recovering. Well, in terms of in the majority, I think two things that we're seeing, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, this so-called chronic fatigue that mm -hmm. people are experiencing. Um, we've seen individuals, even young individuals, and when I say in this case young, we're talking less than 50, um, but even so-called young individuals who were otherwise healthy prior to actually contracting the disease, they've had a problem with being able to get back to their baseline, meaning they were marathon runners before, and now they can mm -hmm. only go a mile or two, et cetera. That's one part. The other part to this, which is not in that majority group, is there's ongoing concern that the coronavirus may lead to so-called chronic disease states that we were just unaware of. Mm. More and more data is starting to come out to suggest that individuals may develop autoimmunity, things like you've heard before, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, mixed connective tissue diseases, et cetera. And then most recently, there's some data that suggests that some of these individuals may actually develop diabetes related to the infection. So again, I like to say this, Ms. Scott, we are literally building the plane as we fly. Yeah. We're learning more about this on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh, how many folks work at the pulmonary COVID-19 recovery clinic? So in order to try to cover a vast geographic landscape, one of the things that we try to do is not house everything for the CRC or the COVID recovery clinic in one location, because mm -hmm. Certainly in our metropolitan Atlanta area and even in the state of Georgia, where we're starting to get referrals both in and out of state, we're trying to, to span across that. So we have physicians in various locations, five of our locations throughout the metropolitan area city, who have still operated under the umbrella of the CRC with the so-called standards that we put in place. So everybody's trying to achieve the same thing. Doctor, do you recommend all who have contracted the virus, even if it appears that they've recovered, whatever recovery it is to them, that they do just maybe come in, whether it's to your clinic or some other clinic, to get an assessment? Or how should folks gauge whether or not they need to seek treatment just for an assessment? So it's a great question. I think twofold. Number one, any individual who falls into the so-called high-risk category, those are individuals over the age of 65, or if you have risk factors like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, uh, even underlying autoimmune disorders and you contracted disorder, I strongly recommend that you follow with your healthcare provider. And certainly the other portion of that are those individuals who have lingering symptoms. I think that's the other group 
that should certainly look for ongoing medical attention, at least early on to have an initial assessment. Mm-hmm. The one thing I continue to tell patients that come into the COVID recovery clinic is even if we don't find anything right away when it comes to physiologic abnormalities, we recognize that the things that you may be experiencing are certainly real. And it's not necessarily a figment of your imagination, but this is just time that will continue to tell us. And we're asking your patients from the medical community and vice versa. The medical community must be patient with those who have ongoing symptoms. And finally, it's a question I've asked so many times, and you're going to get it as well. Where do you hope that we will be as a nation and maybe even as a world, let's say in the next six months with this virus? So my hope is, is that You know, we can ultimately, the ultimate goal is to get to a point where the coronavirus is just a nuisance like it once was. It just Mm -hmm. causes the common cold. And we see a little bit of a hope on the horizon with them. It's got mostly with the uh, implementation of the vaccine. I would strongly, strongly encourage individuals who are uh, at risk and certainly fall into categories early on to try to educate yourself, inform yourself, and make an informed decision about getting the vaccine because if you talk about mitigation strategies, that's only going to do so much. We've talked a lot about that over the last year. Mm-hmm. But there's actually a, a hope on the horizon here with the implementation of the vaccine to really try to get us back to some sense of normalcy. I anticipate or hope that if we increase the number of individuals who are both willing and those who are able to get the vaccine, and we can continue to increase that number, the hope is in the next six, maybe nine months, we'll, we'll start to see a little bit of our normal state. Dr. Jermaine Jackson, a pulmonologist and the medical director of the Piedmont Pulmonary COVID-19 Recovery Clinic. Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Our listeners always appreciate when they we have the experts like yourselves on. And also, just a disclaimer, folks, always, always consult your primary care physician before making any decisions about your health and well-being. Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for taking the time. We're going to bring you back. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinka. Our programming note, we will have the segment with Agnes Scott in the city of Decatur. We promise tomorrow, but due to time constraints, we couldn't get to it today. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. Of course, you know you can catch Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. So now stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024.